Welcome to the South Elkhorn Christian Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy the weekly messages. For bulletin material, reflection guides, and other resources, visit southelkhorncc.org. Well, today we're continuing our sermon series in Job. We're going to dig deeper into the book of Job. This is part two of a five-part sermon series that we began last week. And if you missed last week's message or missed last week's sermon, you can find that message and that sermon in full along with the whole worship service on our website, um, on our Facebook page. Uh, Forthcoming this week, I hope and pray, will be the first uh, message in the sermon series, just the message itself on our church podcast. And so you can um, follow our church podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and you can follow along on the, in the series if you miss, miss a message. Um, but importantly, as we step into this part of the narrative arc of Job, I do want to remind us of where we've been to set us up with what we're going to dig deeper into today. If you'll recall, Job, Job, we were introduced to Job as this righteous, righteous person who then experienced the fallout of a wager between God and the accuser, Ha Satan. The result was that Job, a person who had a big family, 10 Ten kids who had a lot of wealth and possessions, livestock, all of that was destroyed, killed, including servants, because of natural and human disasters. Fire, wind, indeed, even uh, invading armies. And as if that wasn't enough, we learned in chapter 2 that Job, Job's health was taken from him, that his bodies were covered in sores. And when we last left Job, he was sitting on an ash heap, in his grief, in his anguish, in his misery, and we learned that he did not curse God with his lips, with his lips, suggesting perhaps, maybe, there's something going on in Job's heart. What we're going to read is what's going on in Job's heart. There is a shift, there's a change that happens, even even stylistically as we read. We're going to move from prose into prose. Poetry. Poetry is beautiful. It also offers some challenges when interpreting and understanding what's going on. But it's important just to pay attention to that shift. We're moving from a person of patience and silence and suffering into speech. So turn with me, if you will, Job chapter 3. We're going to be reading verses, uh, selections from chapter 3, chapter 4, and then chapter 7. This begins a kind of dialogue moment. Again, speech welling up within Job. Speech that is then part of a conversation with a friend and with God. We begin with these difficult, heavy, intense words in Job chapter 3. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Job said, let the day perish in which I was born and the night that said a man child, a child is conceived. Let that day be darkness. Let it be darkness. May God above not seek it or light shine on it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds settle upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Yes, let that night be barren, empty. Let no joyful cry be heard in it. Let those curse it who curse the sea, those who are skilled to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its, own, of its dark dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none. 
May it not see the eyelids of the morning because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb and hide trouble from my eyes. Words of pain, anguish, suffering, grief. Now Job is, with, um, is not by himself in this moment. At the very end of chapter two, we didn't talk about this last week, at the very end of chapter two, some friends show up and are with Job. Three friends. And so these words that come uh, from Job's mouth are not received in silence, but are instead received by those who are with him. And his friends can't help but chime in. So we're going to hear what Job's friend has to say in chapter 4. His first friend. Then Eliphaz, Eliphaz the Temanite answered, If one ventures a word with you... uh, Will you be offended? But who can keep from speaking? See, you have instructed many, Job. You have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have supported those who are stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. You've helped a lot of people, people who have gone through difficult, troubled times. But now those difficult, troubled times have come to you. Now it has come to you. And you're impatient. It touches you and you're dismayed. But is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? Think now, think, think back. Who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God, they perish, and by the blast of his anger, they are consumed. There, there, friend. Job is uh, none too pleased with his friend's words and spends a portion of the chapters between this moment and what we're about to read, beginning to defend his speech and saying, friend, you are not taking my words seriously. You are not hearing me. You're not listening to me. You don't understand what is going on. You're not hearing the anguish and the pain. You're not understanding my context. You're not listening. I am right to speak in this way, and I'm going to keep on speaking. And Job turns his attention Now to God. Chapter 7, verse 11. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I the sea or the dragon that you, God, set a guard over me? When I say, my bed, my bed, please, just my bed will comfort me. My couch will ease my complaint. Then you scare me with dreams. And you terrify me with visions. So that I would choose strangling in death rather than this body. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Let me alone. Leave me alone. For my days are a breath. What are human beings? What are human beings that you make so much of them? That you set your mind on them? Visit them every morning. Test them every moment. Will you not look away from me for just a while? Just a minute? Let me alone until I can just swallow my own spit. If I sin, what do I really do to you? Tell me, what do I really do to you? Why do you not just pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I shall lie in the earth. You will seek me, 
but I shall not be. If you would just forgive me, God, I could die in peace. Heavy, hard, raw words. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let there be light. And there was light. Genesis chapter 1, the story of creation. Job chapter 3, let there be darkness. Job's whole world has fallen apart. Job is feeling such deep anguish that he can't help but just reach out to the words of the creation story and and speak about an anti-creation, an implosion of creation. The world itself is falling apart. It would have been better if my world would have never been. Let there be darkness. These are powerful, powerful words. And as I mentioned, they're spoken in the context of community because Job is not alone. You see, he's got three friends, and they do something right. They get it right. They learn, Job's friends learn, that that Job has gone through a terrible calamity, through terrible, terrible grief and pain and sorrow. They know that he's suffering in a deep way, that he's lost his family, that he's lost his livelihood, that he's lost his possessions, that in many ways maybe he's lost his future. And, and, And what they could have done is they could have stayed at home and sent him a card and said, we're thinking about you, thoughts and prayers. But instead what they do is they coordinate their care and they show up together from different places. They care enough about him to talk to each other about how can we best support our friend. Perhaps our friend needs us. These are close friends. These aren't acquaintances. These are close friends who do the work of friendship and show up. They don't just show up. They pay attention. They pay attention to what's happening to and with Job. They see him sitting there in the ash heap. They see him silent. And so they get it right. They don't say anything. In fact, they start doing what Job's doing. They start going through the ritual of mourning themselves with ashes and tearing of clothes. And they, and they sit with him, not for one day, not two days, but for seven days, what in the Jewish tradition is called sitting Shiva. Shiva is a Hebrew word that comes from the number seven, seven, sitting for seven days with him. And, the, and, and we, we learn in Job chapter two, right before this passage where Job speaks, we learn that they noticed his great suffering and so didn't say anything. And that ends the time of silence. Because the very next words are the words of Job bubbling up with what he needs to say. Now I want to suggest a couple of important things to know here. Um, I I think that Job and his friends are not alone in that moment either. My own theology is that I believe God is there with them too. Not necessarily the God that we might have heard about in Job chapter 1. I want to also be very clear here. As I mentioned last week, Job chapter 1 is a kind, Job chapter 1 clues us in that this is a kind of parable. There once was a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. Very similar to what Jesus does in his teachings. There once was a man who had two sons. The story, the parable of the prodigal son. There once was a man who was going down to Jericho when he was beset by thieves. The story of the Good Samaritan. This 
We want to be careful here. I want to be very clear. The way that God is described in Job chapter 1, I don't think that's the way God works. That God takes bets with the heavenly beings to, bring, to rain down calamity and distress and difficulty and, and to take kids away and to kill. That's, so I want to be very clear here that what's going on in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2 is meant to set up some of the most profound and important questions that we can wrestle with as human beings. What does it mean to suffer? Who is God in the context of great suffering? What does friendship and mutual support look like and mean? And perhaps this one, which is a little less obvious, what does it mean for someone to go through a process of transformation through suffering? There's a lot going on here that we have to be careful with and pay close attention to including what this whole book is all about. One way we can understand this book, and I don't think it's wrong to explore this question or think about these things. One of the ways is we can say, you know, why do good things happen, or why do bad things happen to good people? And who is God when bad things happen to good people? I don't think that's an unnecessary question. I think it's a good question. It's worth exploring and thinking about. But I wonder if the book of Job is not so much about the why of suffering as it is about the now what. Now what? Suffering has happened. Grief is upon us. Loss, death, heartache. Now what? Well, I want to suggest this morning that one of the most powerful and important things we can do for one another in times of great grief and sorrow is show up. I'm not suggesting that we do that for every person we ever hear about who's going through grief or sorrow. That can be overwhelming to have 100 people show up at your door at any one time. What I'm talking about is when our friends and our loved ones, when the people we're close to are grieving and going through a lot, one of the most important things we can do is make ourselves available and show up. And Job's friends do it right. They show up. And not only that, they do something else. They pay attention. What does Job need in this moment? Job is silent And he doesn't need any words. He just needs someone to sit with him, someone to be with him. And I believe in that moment of great compassion and great care, God is there. God is with Job. Perhaps not the the God that we might have heard about in Job chapter 1, but perhaps the God who this story is meant to open us up to. So God and Job's friends are sitting there, and and for those seven days, that kind of compassion and care finally creates the conditions under which Job feels. Remember, Job is a man of great integrity, honesty, authenticity. He's real, and so he brings real words. These bubble up, and he begins to share them, and as soon as he starts saying these words, his friends get a little uncomfortable. But let's be honest. If you're sitting with someone who starts cursing the day of their birth, who starts saying it'd be better if I was dead, wouldn't you, wouldn't I, wouldn't we perhaps want to try to talk them out of whatever, what does that mean? I don't know what that, we, wouldn't you want to try and fix it too? So his friends perhaps do the best they know how to do, but I want to suggest this, that when someone is going through great suffering and great grief, they get to say whatever they want. They get to say whatever they want. And we get to listen. And then what we don't do is we don't, we don't offer advice, try to tidy it up for them and make it all make sense, put a bow on it and say, 
God doesn't give you more than you can handle. In fact, there's this beautiful uh, thing called ring theory. Perhaps some of you have, have heard it or seen it. Um, there's a, a, an image that I'd like to show you. Um, so the way it works is when someone is going through a difficult time, going through grief, going through sorrow, going through a, a painful experience, that there are various concentric circles of people in their lives. And where you are in those concentric circles helps you understand what your role is. So if you're a significant other to someone who's experiencing great loss and great grief, your job is to pour comfort in. It's not to offer advice, and it's not to complain, and it's not to talk about how hard this is for you. In fact, I was uh, listening to someone who was saying, you know, it was a really strange experience. We had just buried my father, and we were, we were back at the house, and this friend came and said, oh, I'm so sorry for you. And I mean, this is just, I don't know the right, I mean, this is just so hard for me. This is just really, really hard for me. I don't really know what to say. I'm just, I'm going through a lot. This is really, really hard. It's called making it about you, but it needs to be about the person who's closest to the pain. It doesn't mean it's not important for you to process how hard it is for you, but again, comfort in, dump out. When you need to process and complain about how hard, how hard it is to care for your loved one who has a disease, who is sick, who is going through a hard time, you've got your friends around you to talk. Don't talk to them about it. <laughs> Find other people that you can complain to. Job is right to complain. You are right. There's nothing wrong with you if you need to complain. What this gives us a little sense of is maybe the better way to do that. And I want to say this again. I think in the midst of this conversation, in the midst of this moment, that God is there receiving it too. Now Job's friends represent the traditional religious wisdom of the time. Job's friends become the mouthpiece for this idea that God doesn't actually hurt anyone who has integrity, anyone who's done nothing wrong. And so what's under the surface here is this subtle accusation that perhaps Job may be not as blameless as he thinks he is because this would never happen if Job hadn't done something wrong. And Job hangs on to his integrity. if, If there is even anything that I might have done, it's nothing to deserve this. Job is honest. He's a person of great integrity, we're told from the beginning. And we're beginning to see that maybe what that means is not what we thought it meant from the very beginning. Uh, Dorothy uh, Swelle, I think is how you pronounce her last name. She speaks of three phases of suffering. And she's talking about people who undergo great oppression, but I think it's, a, I think it's a, a applicable to people who are going through any kind of grief and trauma and difficulty. She speaks about the phase of mute suffering, and then the, sp- then the phase of speaking suffering. And what we've just witnessed in this transition from chapter one and two to chapter three is a transition to speaking suffering. And the thing about speaking suffering is for the very beginning of that, it's worse. Giving voice to words intensifies the suffering for a time. But as part of the process part of the process of no longer going within with the suffering but coming out with the suffering. One commentator said perhaps the scariest ending to the book of Job would have been if it had ended in chapter 2 with silence and suffering. 
that perhaps the job of a person of faith is to hear in the words, no matter how hard they are to hear, that just the act of bringing this to words is already good news. Something has changed. Something is moving. Something is happening. And I believe in that moment of speaking pain and anguish and sorrow that God is there too. And perhaps, unlike Job's friends, God can hear it. God can absorb it. God can receive it. God can be the emotional container that his friends were having a hard time being in that moment. Have you ever had a moment of wanting to curse the day of your birth? I don't know that I would put it in those terms, but I know what it's like to have such deep, deep pain and grief that I want to escape it, that I wish I could have avoided it. Perhaps some of you know, some of you may not, that uh, when I was uh, a fifth grader, uh, I was the oldest of three kids, my brother Philip and my sister Angela. When I was a fifth grader, my sister Angela at six years old tragically drowned. And I would say probably most of my adolescent life into my adult, early adulthood was what I would call mute suffering. Not really talking about the grief, not really processing it. It just kind of lived there as an open wound. And then at the end of high school, going into college more so in divinity school and seminary, uh, beginning to bring the story, the pain out into the open and beginning to give it words. And so I've been on a grief journey ever since I was in fifth grade of learning what to do with this grief and this pain and this anguish. And recently, a couple years ago, my spiritual director said, you know, this grief work's really important. I'm really, you know, glad for you. I think you're doing good stuff. Have you talked with your family about this? I said, no, we really don't. We really don't talk a whole lot about this. And he said, well, what would it mean for you to have a conversation with your family? And so I called my brother up and I said, Philip, this might be kind of weird, kind of strange. He's given me permission to share this. I said, I'd love to meet for lunch. And can we, can we talk? I want to talk about Angela. And I said, you know, I, I've been sorting through, thinking about the pain and the anguish and the grief that I've been feeling. And I, you know what I never thought of? What was it like for you? And he said, I mean, words that have stayed with me. He said, you know, as soon as we learned that Angela had died, I I prayed to God, can we change spots? I wish it were me. Now, thankfully, (laughs) I didn't try to talk my brother out of that comment a while back. It resonated in a deep place with me, and I just listened And it was powerful and beautiful and hard and real and raw. And we could feel the tenderness begin to to bubble up, you know, that sense of, oh, I might start crying here, but I'm not going to cry. We're in a subway. Um, (laughs) But later I was telling my spiritual director and counselor and therapist, I was saying, there was something powerful in sharing those words with my brother and having that pain out to be shared with others. And he said, yep, that's part of the grief process. There's good news that Job is willing to share his pain. If only his friends could listen and receive it. Well, Job then turns his attention to God. And I want to say this, beneath the surface, God can hear it and receive it. Even when Job says, would you please just leave me alone? If this is who you really are, if you're visiting this calamity upon me, then what would be best, what would be better is if you would stop making so much of us. 
And there's also an accusation in here. Do I, if all of that is really true, traditional wisdom and religious thoughts of my friends, if all that's really true, why is it so disproportionate? There's nothing I've done that could possibly warrant this. And what we're going to see over the next few sermons and as we dive deeper into Job's conversation with God is we're going to see how God responds. We're going to see how Job continues to make sense of his suffering. We're going to see where this lands. Dorothy Swelley says there's three phases of suffering. There's mute suffering, there's speaking suffering, and then there's changing suffering. And I want to suggest that where we land at the end of Job is changing suffering. This is a powerful, powerful book of Scripture because it allows us to see that Suffering and grief are real and they are hard and they impact us and they change us. What does it mean to show up for those who are suffering and grieving? What does it mean to be in conversation with God in the midst of suffering and grieving? And if any of you think that the Bible is full of just really nice things, Chapter 7 is, we're the teenagers, chapter 7 is sarcasm. Chapter 7, and I'm not just speaking to teenagers, because I know we got some sarcastic people in here too. Um, chapter 7 is parody, right? Job knows Psalm chapter 8, and Job flips Psalm 8 on his head. What are humans that you are mindful of us? Isn't it great to be human? And what does Job say? What are humans that we have to go through this misery? Come on, God. There is grief, there's raw anger and frustration and uncertainty. There's challenge, there's sarcasm, there's peri- It's all here in Job because integrity means being real. And Job is real. And even though his friends couldn't always handle it, God can. And we're going to see what that means. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we give you thanks this morning that we can gather together as your people and we can be real. Because as we mentioned this morning in in our call to worship, we come from diverse experiences, we come from diverse backgrounds, we come bringing all different kinds of things to this moment and you meet us here just as we are. Without judgment, to receive the fullness of who we are that in the context of that listening love, we might be made new, however long that takes. So give us patience this day with Job, give us patience with his friends, and give us patience with you as our understanding transforms and grows. Give us patience with ourselves that we might find the words to share the words to say, and when it is right and good, no words at all. God, we are mindful that what Job went through can be heard in the words of Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Anguish, sorrow, 
And in the midst of that anguish and sorrow, a deeper trust that God was listening and that God might yet do something new. Open us this day to who you are and to who you are calling us to be. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the message this week. Visit southelkorncc.org where you can download reflection and discussion guides to dig deeper into the weekly scripture and message.